like to get real this morning about the fact that Scripture teaches us that we are the sent people of God. And in fact, I don't want to just talk about that this morning, but I want to talk about it today, tomorrow, and on the third Sunday from now, prior to Advent, because it's a terribly important topic, and because during this COVID time, as Ron just prayed, there is so much opportunity for us to engage in being the sent people of God. One of the ways to think about being the sent people of God is that every single week, God draws us in here. We are the gathered people of God. And then He sends us out into the world, into our homes, into our cities, into our communities, to be His hands and feet in the world. And if you will, this is the rhythm of our existence together as God's people. God, it's, a, it's like the inhale and the exhale, to put it theologically. God pulls us in as He breathes in, and then He pushes us out in the exhale. We're drawn in to worship together and to know God, and we are put out into the world to bring the good news about Jesus. So I want to talk about being the sent people of God. I take as my text John 20, verses 19 through 23. Jesus has risen up from the grave. John portrays Jesus' resurrection as his inaugurating a new creation, which is why it's in a garden. He's mistaken for a gardener. He meets somebody, it's Mary, but he calls her a woman. He has established a new community around himself, and now he's going to give his disciples, in our text, instructions for how he wants them to be the sent people of God in the world. I'm kind of using this text, you'll see why in a moment, as a springboard or a platform into a message on our sentness. And you'll see why we do this. But I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John 20, 19 through 23. Beloved, listen to God's Word. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven forgiven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I take as my focus from this passage just one single sentence in one single verse. Verse 21. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. Beloved, Jesus' earthly ministry is paradigmatic which is to say it is a model for how we too are to do ministry in this world. The way in which the Father sends the Son is the way now in which Jesus wants to send us. His earthly ministry is paradigmatic. It is a pattern. As the Father has sent me, so now am I sending you. 
by recording this instruction of our Lord at the end of his gospel, John invites us to go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John and to give it a second reading. A second reading where we are particularly attuned to just how it is that the Father sends the Son and how the Son then goes into the world. And over the next three weeks, this is what I would like to look at with you. To pull out some aspects from the ministry of Jesus of how he goes into the world. And therefore, how we too are to go into the world as those sent by the Father into the world. But allow me just to lay down the foundation here. When you start in John chapter 1 and you ask the question, how is it that the Father sends the Son into the world? And how must we therefore also go into the world? Here is the foundation. Here is the baseline. The Father according to John 1.14, does not send the Son as a ghost or as a disembodied spirit or as a nice idea or as a spiritual principle or as some kind of teaching alone, but when the Father sends the Son, He sends Him in the flesh. He sends Him with a body. And thus, for the church too, we must Always remember that the Father sends us not as an idea, not just as a set of principles, not just as a teaching, but as an embodied people of God who are to go into the world with a particular, enduring, persevering concern for bodies. For the care of bodies. This is fundamental. As I said, this is foundational. One has said, the Word became flesh. And one of the temptations of the church is to turn the flesh back into word again. Rather than going and being a people, indeed, who live a crunchy materiality under the providence of God, caring for and loving others in the midst of their bodies. So that's the foundational thing. That's the, or to put it the other way, that's the umbrella under which everything else we're going to say must be understood As we continue to move in the Gospel of John, we come to Jesus' public ministry, which is particularly instructive for this topic. As the Father sends Jesus into the world, so he sends us into the world. Jesus' public ministry, therefore, is particularly instructive. John is wonderful because he gives us pictures of events of how Jesus operates in the world. The first Ministry activity of Jesus is not only instructive for us, but I think it's a tad bit shocking in the fourth gospel. What we see Jesus doing here is particularly shocking when you compare it to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each of them have their own theological emphases, and you get a taste of what their theological emphasis is going to be by seeing what they report as the first ministry activity of Jesus, the first public ministry activity. John is such a maverick, as one has called him. He's so different. And it's fascinating what he wants to emphasize for us in terms of how we too are to be sent out into the world. Unlike Matthew, who tells us that Jesus goes and preaches a message of repentance 
as his first ministry activity. And unlike Mark, who tells us that Jesus goes and engages in some teaching and an exorcism as his first ministry activity, and unlike Luke, who tells us that Jesus goes into the synagogue, picks up the scroll of Isaiah, and says, I have come to preach the good news to the poor. Major emphasis in Luke. John does something entirely different. Do you remember what it is? Jesus' first public activity in the Gospel of John is that he goes to a wedding. And when the party's about to get ruined because they've run out of wine, Jesus turns a gargantuan amount of water, at least 120 gallons, into a gargantuan amount of wine. 120 gallons. And not just any wine. This is the vintage stuff. This is the finest of fine wines. As the master of the banquet says, ordinarily people serve the best wine first when the guests are not three sheets into the wind and sailing. But you have served the best wine to begin with. Beloved, when the Father sends Jesus into the world, I think we can take it from this story and must take it, that the Father sends him with mirth. To bring mirth. In a spirit of mirth. And if you will say to me, well, what, on the, what in the world is mirth? I will just reply to you, and why am I using language like this? It is because I believe this word happens to be one of the most lovely words in the English language. And so I want to teach you what it means if you don't know it. The Oxford English Dictionary defines mirth as gaiety, or lightness of mood, especially as manifested in laughter, merriment, hilarity. In short, mirth is joy with a particular kind of texture. The joy of being merry. The joy of being able to laugh. The joy of wanting to bring levity into a world that is run out of wine. A little bit of lightness. A little bit of joy. Turn to your neighbor and just say, mirth. You'll know what I mean. It'll make you smile just saying the word. Jesus, when He's sent by the Father, is sent with mirth. With a spirit of merriment, of gaiety, trying to bring a certain degree of joy and levity into the, the world. And please, make no mistake about it, beloved of God, this wine is the real stuff. And this wine is a symbol of joy. Let me be very clear. Although Scripture is unambiguous about the fact that alcohol can be abused and can bring great wreck and ruination to our lives, and that it needs to be used with a great deal of caution and moderation, and that drunkenness is not a good idea and not acceptable to God, Scripture is also unambiguously clear that wine is a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of of mirth. It can bring levity into heavy situations. For example, do you know what the theology actually is of alcohol according to Scripture? We get the foundation in Genesis. There's so many things that are foundational. We get the theology of what liquor is for in Genesis. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 5, you have this long and what you might consider a very boring genealogy, but there's something said about Noah. And the thing that is said about Noah turns out to be a prophecy. It's prophesied that Noah will give relief from the ground 
that God has cursed. Noah will give relief to humanity from the ground that is cursed. The idea here is that it's really difficult to make a living. Sometimes it's grudge work, it's painful, it's hard. But Noah, it said, is going to be re- give us relief from that. He'll bring a little levity. He might bring a little merriment. And how is he going to do that? After he gets off the ark, the first thing that Noah does is what? Plants a vineyard. He becomes the world's first vintner. That's the fulfillment of the prophecy. Connected immediately to that text, as you will well remember, is the abuse of that merriment when Noah goes a bit too far. But wine in Scripture is a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of levity. Let me, if I can find where I wrote this. Oh, here it is. Proverbs 31 touches on the same theme. Give beer to those who are perishing. Wine to those who are in anguish. Because a little bit of this liquid, I'm saying a little bit, can bring a little bit of joy or levity even in the darkest days. Paul says to Timothy when he's burdened down by pastoral ministry, take a little wine for your stomach, Timothy. But then wine also is portrayed in Scripture as a gift that can consummate a celebration. We get this in Ecclesiastes 10, 19, and 9, 7. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. A symbol of mirth, a symbol of joy, a symbol of merriment. In fact, so much so is wine a symbol of this in Scripture that when the prophets in Israel begin to think about what the world to come will look like when God brings it in in all its fullness, when He makes all things new, they think in terms of wine. In Isaiah 25.6, Isaiah says that on that day, God comes to save Israel, there will be, quote, a banquet of rich food and abundant wine. Abundant wine. Joel and Amos, when they look forward to that day, they see the hills pouring and dripping with a superabundance of wine. And now here comes Jesus with 120 gallons, the fulfillment of the prophecy to Amos and Joel in embryo. Beloved, when Jesus comes, he comes with joy. Now let me deal with one objection to this here, a potential objection. We're saying this is a theological accent in John, and it's emphasizing how the Father sends the Son, so too we should be sent. If this is true, and we are to be sent with this sort of mirth and joy that Jesus has, then why is this emotion of Jesus and what Jesus brings so seldom mentioned in the Gospels? Because it is very seldom mentioned that Jesus was a person of mirth. It's often very serious, the ministry that Jesus undertakes. And we might think, well, maybe this really isn't an accent that we should be alighting on here. G.K. Chesterton, an English uh, writer and thinker and theologian, thought about this problem as well. And he kind of pondered, why is it that so infrequently do we see this joy of God, even though Jesus was totally free with his emotions? I want to read you what Chesterton says about this because I think it's just Positively wonderful. Chesterton says this, The Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. Jesus never concealed his tears. He showed them plain on his open open face at any daily sight, yet he concealed something. 
Solemn, solemn supermen and imperial diplomatists are proud of restraining their anger. Jesus never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple and asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that Jesus hid from all men when he went up on a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly in abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon this earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. So great is the joy of God that for us human beings to see it in its fullness would undo us. Remember that Scripture says that no one can see the face of God and live. Is it possible? Because if you were to see the face of God, you would see the radiance of His joy. And at the present moment, we couldn't stand to withstand the whole full force of God's joy. When Jesus flips back the hem of His garment as He does here in John 1 and gives us a foretaste of the joy of God, it's a cascading amount. 120 gallons of joy. Enough joy to make you drunk if you're not careful. And beloved, John suggests that we are to go into the world then too. Very, very simply. With the joy of God, bringing the joy of God. Bringing a little bit of levity in a world that has run out of wine. You know, and we may think that we have to do great things or big things in order to achieve this, but the reality is that oftentimes it's just the small things that make the biggest difference, isn't it? I got a text from uh, Tim Sanders a couple of weeks ago, and he said, hey, I'm coming into the office. You want me to bring a coffee? And he's done this a bunch of times for staff, and he just wants to bring a little joy because coffee can bring you joy just as well as a glass of wine can. Jonathan Huang, an intern at Hope CRC, did the same thing last week. He and I had a meeting here at the church, and I knew he was going to bring me a latte, but he brought two more just in case there were others around that he could bring a smile to their face. When you go to the supermarket, it's hard now with masks, but just to even give somebody a smile, to try and bring a tiny bit of joy to the person at the checkout counter. We are called to bring about a little levity, a little bit of mirth. Maybe we do it with the gift of humor. Fred and Nancy Rivers have the gift of humor, and I've always told Fred I'm going to get back at him for this. Um, there's a place for practical joking in the Christian life too, and it can be good. Uh, myself and Larry and Fred had to do some church business, so we had gone to Dublin's to talk about some things, and after about an hour at the Dublin's, we all went in our separate directions. I went in my car down uh, Fraser Highway toward 176, and Larry went the other direction, and Fred went in another direction yet. And as it turned out, I got followed by a policeman out of the Dublins, and I was very responsible. But when you get pulled over, and they say that you need to do a breathalyzer, it doesn't matter if you had a drop. It's positively nerve-wracking. So I undertook my first breathalyzer ever that night in the morning, I texted Fred and Larry and said, you won't believe what happened to me after we left the Dublins yesterday. I had a breathalyzer. 
I was under, but boy, oh boy, was that scary. And Larry writes back and says, yeah, they followed me out of the Dublins too. And, Larry, and Fred says, yeah, well, I guess they knew who to follow. <laughs> Later on that week, or I think it was the same day actually, I was sitting in my study with a group of people. I was having a very serious meeting as it turned out, and the phone rings, and I pick it up. And I said, hello, it's Ed here. They said, hi, is this Ed Gerber? I said, yes. Uh, this is the RCMP. Our machinery was faulty yesterday. You actually blew over, and so you're required to come to the RCMP, drive down, drop off your keys. And my heart fell into my stomach, and I thought, I'm going to be in big trouble. My face went flush, and all I said is, you've got to be kidding me. And then I thought, too, what silly RCMP officer would ask you to drive down to the station to drop off your keys? And then I heard a chuckle, and I'm like, Fred, is that you? And sure enough, he starts laughing, and anyways... Uh, you know, he had a good laugh about it. Everybody I've told that story had a good laugh about it, even if I'm still a little bit sore of it. Um, it was positively terrifying. But you know, to bring a little bit of levity into people's lives, it's a good thing. It makes us feel human again. And one of the things that we, as the new humanity of God in this world, gathered as the people of Jesus are to do, is, if it's within our power, to bring a little bit of mirth, a little bit of levity, a little bit of wine into a world that has run out of wine, and interpret that wine however you will, beloved of God. You know what adjectives should never describe the Christian? Grumpy, glum, cantankerous, crotchety, crabby, sullen, sour, sully. I am not talking about being sad or offering lament or expressing true grief, but as a posture in our lives that our fundamental mode is to be cantankerous, grumpy, sullen. This is not to describe the Christian. The hallmark of the early Christians and what made a lot of people take a look at them was their inexpressible joy. Paul says to the, to the Galatians, what has happened to all your joy? It causes him great concern when the church begins to lose its joy. Paul in Philippians says, rejoice in the Lord always. And he means have joy. I think one of the single most powerful movies that has kind of played with this theme that I'm talking about today, how bringing a little bit of joy, a little bit of mirth, a little bit of merriment um, can actually make a big difference, is the 1998 film that featured Robin Williams called Patch Adams. I don't know how many of you have seen Patch Adams, but it can be quite delightful in this sense. Patch, Ad Patch or Robin Williams' character, is um, an intern a training to be a medical doctor, and he's surrounded by a lot of doctors who've been become quite stoic. They've become cold, hardened. Um, they just want to take care of people's bodies and be done with it. But Patch comes into this hospital setting, and he wants to care not only for people's bodies, but also their souls. There's one scene in particular where Patch goes into a really difficult situation. He goes into the cancer ward in the children's hospital uh, where there's a lot of terminally ill children. And you walk into, he walks into this room, and it's quiet, and it's dark, it's sullen. And then he's talking to one of these little kids, and he puts this little red nose on. And he just kind of makes little faces, as only Robin Williams can do. And the kid cracks a smile. And then Robin Williams takes one of his medical gloves, and he pulls it, and he puts it on his head. 
and he put he attaches a straw in his mouth and into the thing and he blows on it and the, you know the little fingers go up and then he starts quacking around like a little chicken and the other kids perk up and start giggling and laughing and then he grabs one of the bedpans and he puts it on his head and he starts marching like a shoulder puts soldier puts two on his feet and starts dancing around by this time the kids are in an uproar they're standing in their beds they've got a bit of relief for in what for them is a world that has certainly run out of wine. And it's joyous, and it's so touching. And we, the church, we who have been given the gift of the Spirit by God, which is a spirit of joy as well, are called. We are sent into the world to bring a foretaste of the mirth that is yet to come. But beloved, it's not only, of course, just in... um, wearing noses and doing these sorts of things, but also there's, this is a sign, as Christians go out into the world, it is a sign of the deeper joy of the Gospel. That we are saved by God from our sin, that God has loved us with an almighty love in Christ, and that He is bringing us into a whole new world where there will be no more tears, or sorrow, or sadness, or suffering, or death, but God will be all in all, and our joy will be all in all. That, too, is actually here in this text in John 2, 1-11. Jesus says to his mother, Mother, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And as Jenna said a couple of weeks ago, when you hear that in the fourth gospel, it's always pointing toward Jesus' work on the cross. My hour has not yet come. And in this text, we see Jesus prefiguring his work on the cross. So we see this by typology. There's some typological stuff, as scholars will call it, going on in this text. That's to say, Jesus looks like another historical figure, but he goes beyond them in what he does. It's quite beautiful to see the typology that John is working with in the story of Jesus turning water into wine. So think about some of the things we're told in this text. We're told that this is Jesus' first sign that reveals his glory And as we know, it's a sign that Jesus turns water into wine. And what does that remind you of? It's supposed to remind you of Moses, who engages in a ministry of signs that are explicitly said in Exodus to reveal the glory of God. And the first public sign that Moses engages in is what? He turns water into blood. Here Jesus performs a better sign that leads to a greater deliverance. Jesus turns water into wine instead of blood because, remember Moses, the Passover lamb, the blood is put over the doorposts. Israel saved by virtue of the Passover lamb, not their own goodness. Well, Jesus is the Passover lamb in John's Gospel. He's able to offer wine because he offers his own blood. It's a picture of the redemption that we receive in Christ Jesus. Jesus is also portrayed in this story as a new Joseph. You remember what happened to Joseph. He's rejected by his brothers. He's thrown down into a pit not once but twice. He goes into the land of Egypt where he's made the second, um, the right-hand man of the Pharaoh, the father of Egypt, and he ends up delivering the world from a famine. In other words, he's a savior figure. He saves them. And here in John's Gospel, there's this very curious line that is confused interpreters of this passage for a long time. Jesus' um, mother says to him, you know, they've run out of wine. He says, why did you concern me? Next thing she says is what? 
do whatever he tells you. And it's a very curious transition. That phrase, do whatever he tells you, is precisely the phrase that the Pharaoh of Egypt says about Joseph as Joseph becomes a savior figure for the whole world. So too does Jesus become the savior figure for the whole world by offering the bread that is his body and the the wine that symbolizes his blood. And so it's a sign, John says, that Jesus turns water into wine. A sign. And whenever we as Christians go out into the world and bring joy and mirth, our ultimate goal should be to share the good news of the Gospel about Jesus Christ because this is joy eternal and this is joy as deep down as it goes. So beloved, let us be in prayer and be in thought about how we can bring joy. Joy into our homes, joy into our streets, joy into our neighborhoods, and into this neighborhood. I don't know if you've looked around recently, but my goodness, 72nd, 208th, there's a lot of people coming into this community, and we all know there's a lot who have simply run out of wine. And so let us be the mirth bringers that God has called us to be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.